welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and I'm excited about tonight's guest, uh, Grant Levesque. Um, I had to pre-record with him because right now in uh, Australia, it is 11 o'clock on Wednesday, and there was no way he could get out of work, unfortunately. So uh, it's a pre-recorded show with him, and I'm live right now, of course, just for a couple minutes here for a couple of announcements. And uh, so he'll be on. He's a, a great guest. You're really going to enjoy him. A couple of things. Uh, the blog this week from Charles Lear is a general and a UFO hotspot in Brazil. A great blog, another great one by uh, Charles Lear. I'm pretty excited to say that uh, on the 30th, you're going to see myself uh, with this gentleman right here. So uh, Tim Burchett is going to be on. Uh, I, it may be a short interview. I'm not really sure how long it's going to be. Unfortunately, also, I have to pre-record with him because it's during the day. Uh, but that I'm going to re pre-record with him on Thursday. It's going to be on the following week. So on the 30th, Tuesday, the 30th, um, I'll have Dave from Space Out uh, Radio as my guest. And uh, Tim Burchett, the recording that I have with him, will be played at that time. Um, so I have a lot of questions for him about the hearing that just happened. Seems like a lot of uh, positive things were said according to uh, what I've seen from the interviews afterwards. So uh, if you have any really good questions, you'd like to email me at martinetpodcastufo.com. I'll see if I can ask them if, if it makes sense. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to play the recording that I did with uh, Grant, and I'm going to be in chat. So if you're joining us live, uh, you can interact in the chat room. And uh, I'm going to get going right now. Thank you all for those of you who support the show. And thank all of you who listen to the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, here we go. Grant, welcome to the show. Martin, it's good to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on and, and give me an opportunity to uh, share some perspectives and insights with your uh, with your viewers. So it's good to be with you. Excellent. You know, uh, I have to say that whenever I look at the demographics to listeners to my to this show, uh, it's the United States number one, and then between the UK and Australia, it's number. They go back and forth. Who's the second most listened to? Oh, now to you know. only have twenty six million people in Australia, and that's right. And so many listeners. And what would you attribute that to? Well, look, I think the Australian public has certainly um, a fascination and interest in this topic. Like you know, to the Australian um, mainstream media's credit. Whenever something significant happens in the U.S., whether it's Congress or David Grush coming out uh, with Ross Coulthard on News Nation, the Australian news media will cover it. Um, but that's all they do. It's it's very copy and paste journalism. They don't ask questions of you know those in uh, positions of leadership and authority in Australia, those in the Australian government. Uh, so whilst my gripe with the media is that they don't exercise their due diligence on the topic as frequently as they should, uh, to their credit, they do cover it. And they do have you know, folks that are well known to us in the community, like Jeremy Corbell, John Greenwald Jr. Uh, they have folks come on and, and provide some commentary 
on uh, the U.S. landscape. So I would put it down to the fact that, you know, with everything that's happened in the last several years uh, with the U.S., that information has flowed through to the Australian public. I see. Now, I know you're a uh, uh, ufologist or UFO researcher, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Westall and maybe a few other cases. But uh, let's let's hear about who you are and uh, what got you interested in the topic of UFOs to begin with. Yeah, so, I mean, I've had a fascination for this topic really ever since I was a, a young fellow. I'm, I'm 45 years of age now and in the mid um, 80s when I was around about oh, six or seven or eight, I can't remember the exact year, but my, my father took me to a, uh, a photo exhibition, a UFO photo exhibition that was being um, held at uh, Australia's tallest skyscraper called Centrepoint Tower, which is kind of comparable with, I guess, the Space Needle in Seattle, kind of looks oh, yeah. pretty similar. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was this photo exhibition, which um, I found out only a few years ago that um, uh, renowned Australian ufologist and researcher Bill Chalker was uh, provided some consultancy in the organization of that uh, photo exhibition. But um, coming back to the point that, you know, in this photo exhibition, there are a lot of uh, black and white photos blown up on canvas and displayed around the photo exhibition of these, you know, famous sightings and cases over the of the decades past. And one of them was the black and white McMinnville photo from the from the 50s. And I've said this a number of times before, but I, I really just lost myself. Yeah, that's the one lost myself in that photo and just imagining what it would have been like to be in the uh, in the shoes of the rancher or the farmer to take that photo and see what happened before, during and after the event. And then obviously growing up as a teenager in the 90s, you know, we, I was a, uh, a fan, a child of the X-Files, you know, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. every week, you'd watch it. Then you have a big debrief with your schoolmates the next day. Uh, and then my interest kind of ebbed and flowed uh, in, in the years thereafter. And, and for like so many folks, it wasn't really until you know, the bombshell uh, New York Times articles of December 2017, that that really piqued my interest. And obviously then throughout COVID, you know, so many of us were spending so much more time at home and, uh, you know, not able, certainly for me in Melbourne, not able to uh, to get outside and enjoy the fresh air. I kind of just became a sponge on the topic uh, to the uh to the disinterest or distaste of my wife. And uh, I've always said, you know, marriage and the UFO topic does not always go hand in hand, but she's come to appreciate my uh, my interest. But, you know, I just really became a sponge on the topic during COVID and trying to learn really as much as I could from as many as I could during that period. And, you know, following, obviously, um, there was a, a, a three-day um, live stream event in 2000, September of 2022 called uh, The Big Phone Home, uh, The Big right. Phone Home 2. I was part of that, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And and I remember seeing, uh, you know, it, it was the time zone difference wasn't all that friendly for me, so I had to watch a lot of the stuff in the middle of the night. But that um, event really inspired me to get off my ass, you know, rather than sit on the bench to get in the game and not be a, a passive observer but be an active participant and activate myself and engage my elected representatives on the topic to really see what Australia is doing about the UAP UFO topic. And sadly, Australia is doing very, very little. So that's kind of been my driving force uh, for a number of years now is to engage my elected representatives and members of the media to advocate 
that they take the topic more seriously and ask questions of those that are in positions of leadership and authority in Australia, because Australia is, you know, the US's closest ally. I mean, we're the closest of allies, but we couldn't be further apart on the UAP issue. You know, Australia pretty much uh, is in lockstep with the US on every defense initiative, uh, but it will not touch the UAP topic. And, and that's been a, a question that I've been puzzling to find an answer on for a number of years. And, and that's kind of where I am today, trying to you know, dig for answers as to why Australia's been so uh, lackluster on its interest for the topic. I think that's so strange just in the way that there is so much, obviously so much public interest per capita. As I mentioned earlier, you know, so many people listen to my show from there. So it, it really... I'm really surprised at that. And is there anything you can attribute to that to? Yeah, it's a good point because you're not a lot, not a lot of people know this, but Australia has almost as long as a history investigating the UAP UFO topic as as the US does. You know, dating back to uh, the early 1950s in the years following Roswell, uh, you know, the the Australian. Uh, Air Force and uh, the now defunct Department of Supply, uh, they were they there was a, a policy implemented. It was a, called a, a UAS policy in Australia. It was referred to as unusual aerial sightings, as opposed to UAS, as opposed to UFOs, because there were a lot of um, UAS UFO sightings over um, sensitive military installations in Australia in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, and, and Ross Coulthard talks about these on a number of occasions in his book, In Plain Sight. You've got Woomera, uh, you have Maralinga, where the Brits were permitted to detonate, I think, five uh, nuclear blasts without telling the Indigenous population. And there was a lot of uh, anomalous activity uh, observed and are reported over these, uh, you know, sensitive top secret military, military installations in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, there was a gentleman by the name of, um, also by the name of Harry Turner, who veteran researcher Bill Chalker has done a ton of, a uh, ton of work on, and and I've had the good fortune of learning from Bill directly, and and uh, you know, he's certainly been a great mentor for me. But um, Harry Turner took a very, he was a, an Australian nuclear scientist. He took a very keen interest in the UFO topic, and he was permitted to see uh, the Australian Air Force's, you know, secret documents, reports of, of UFOs, and he took it upon himself to really start to investigate the topic from an Australian context, uh, to the point where he even made a recommendation to uh, the the Joint Intelligence Organization, the JIO, and the Directorate of Air Force Intelligence that uh, they consider implementing a rapid intervention team, like a, a crash retrieval team. So mm. Harry Turner was taking this topic very, very seriously. And unfortunately, all of the recommendations that he made unfortunately fell on deaf ears because the, uh, you know, the Air Force and uh, Directorate of Air Force Intelligence and JAO, they caught wind of him um, supporting uh, the, the, the work of Donald Kehoe, who had made some hypotheses that, well, perhaps UFOs are of an extraterrestrial origin. And the fact that Harry Turner just, uh, you know, uh, referenced Donald Kehoe's work or, or supported it in that fashion, 
um, his findings and all of his work was kind of brushed to the wayside and his work fell on deaf ears, which was really wow. unfortunate. Then you know, essentially fast forward to uh, 1993, where a, a policy recommendation change was submitted to the Chief of Air Staff, which is now known as the Chief of Air Force. And there was a recommendation made that the Royal Australian Air Force cease its ongoing investigation into UFOs because it could not find any compelling or scientific or other compelling reason to continue to devote resources to the ongoing investigation of the topic. And sadly, that policy was implemented, that policy recommendation was implemented in 1996, and that's when the Royal Australian Air Force washed its hands and basically said, move along, folks, there's nothing to see here. So uh, what has what is puzzling to me is that the Royal Australian Air Force and the Australian Department of Defence continues to bury its head in the sand on this topic and basically toe the line of move along, folks, there's nothing to see here, uh, and continue to reiterate the line that they've said in 1996, that there's no compelling or scientific reason for us to continue to vote resources. Well, the, the problem there is that the Australian Department of Defence and Royal Australian Air Force um, has not investigated reports of UFO, UFOs since 1996. Um, up until May of this year, where Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick of ARO conducted the first ever um, Five Eyes Forum on UAP, prior to May of this year, Australia had not had any engagement publicly that we're aware of with the United States on UFOs, UAP, and it had not been privy to any of the classified information housed within the classified reports uh, provided to Congress by the ODNI. And there was this document that I was able to secure through for release through the Freedom of Information Act in Australia, the, one of the most significant documents that's come out of the Australian Department of Defence in more than 30 years, that basically confirmed that the Royal Australian Air Force had a strategic narrative, uh, specifically that UAP UFOs must be one of three things. It made this determination uh, without having done, you know, investigated the topic, been uh, exposed to classified info, or engaged the US they came to the conclusion that UAP are likely to be um, natural or other benign phenomena. That was the first. Number two, sensor errors with uh, you know, surveillance equipment. And three, uh, you know, human-made technologies, which could include foreign adversarial systems. There was no reference whatsoever in that Chief of Air Force brief on UAP that UAP could be uh, anything other than those three things. There was no catch-all other bin that the ODNI indicated in its preliminary assessment on UAP back on the 25th of June 2021. So that's been a real sense of frustration for me, uh, trying to understand why Australia, the US's closest ally, is so reluctant to uh, acknowledge that a conversation needs to be had on UAP, uh, that it should be investigated and that a conclusion should be reached as to what UAP are. Because the US Department of Defense and Congress has reiterated time and time again that UAP pose a national security threat and safety of flight risk, and that UAP is not isolated to the United States or North America. It's an international issue. So um, why Australia continues to bury its head in the sand on the topic 
is completely perplexing. Uh, there's a couple of reasons yeah. why I think that is the case that they're so reluctant, which I can speak to if you wish. But yeah. that kind of gives a bit of a brief history on uh, Australia's uh, you know, past in terms of the UAP UFO topic. Well, you know, it's similar. You think about some of the things that happened in the United States as far as our Air Force, 1969, you flip the last two digits, 9669. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. It's when they concluded basically the same. However, you know, going all the way back into 1947 was the first uh, document that came out that said that, you know, these are not imaginary, you know, mm -hmm. so our government has been aware of this and kind of acknowledges it, uh, you know, back and forth over the years, uh, not uh, so much until the last, you know, year uh, when there, we have this, uh, you know, this hearing in D.C. But, yep. uh, you know, in, in 97, you're right, the, the bombshell article that hit the New York Times really did change so much, you know, when you really think about um, it for my own personal uh, level in that whole situation. It's like I felt finally comfortable enough to talk about it um, to people that normally I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You know, where the topic has come up, um, I'm a fine art appraiser and I work in homes, uh, you know, a, a lot. And uh, usually it's very um, affluent uh, people that are having these appraisals. And, you know, I am not so afraid to bring up the topic if it, yeah. if it works. You know, yeah. and it has it has a number of times, and uh, you know, there's definitely the the stigma has worn down quite a bit. Um, well, you're right. I think, and, and that goes to you know, it's kind of safety in numbers now, isn't it? And strength in numbers, where so many more people have been exposed to this topic and and see how seriously it's been taken. It's not about you know the green little men anymore. That conversation, even though that's a huge part of it, you know, David David Grush's claims, and it's great that members of Congress are taking those allegations and claims seriously. But you're right. You can, I think, I mean, I, I was always very hesitant and reluctant to talk to friends, colleagues, family, or people I just met on the street uh, about the topic out of fear of rid, rid, you know, ridicule and stigma. And, you know, slowly, very, very slowly, those walls of stigma are starting to, to fall around this topic. And I've said this story a number of times. You know, I'm originally from Sydney, live in Melbourne now in Australia, and I was traveling to Sydney a year or two ago, and I was doing some research on the time on the Phoenix Lights. You know, I was reading a, a book by Dr. Lin Kitai, um, and I was going through the security checkpoint screening with my, um, you know, my carry-on baggage, and I had the book in my carry-on, and they screened my bag and they wanted to go through it. And the the screener saw the book in my carry-on. And before you know it, we dived into a whole conversation about the Phoenix Lights and, and UAP UFOs. And, you know, we ended up having probably a conversation for a good five or ten minutes in between him screening other bags. Um, and it was just, you know, there was no ridicule. There was no stigma attached to it. So I think people would be surprised as to how open others are in having a conversation on this topic um, because of everything that's happened over the course of the last, you know, six, seven years. And also another thing, when, when that topic comes up, I'm never surprised at how many people will say, oh, yeah, well, my uncle you know, had this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, th that type of thing ha yep. happened back in, you know, 1970s or whatever. You, you, there's so many people that this has, that have, have had encounters. 
I forget, um, I read something recently where it's in the hundreds of thousands of encounters that have been reported. Now, uh, granted, probably, um, you know, 5% of those are totally unexplained, but still, uh, you know, the old saying goes, you only need one, you know. Exactly. That's yeah. right. And and they're the ones that we're interested about. It's it's not, you know, Project Blue Book closed its doors uh, with still, uh, what was it, 2 or 3% of cases unresolved. And, you know, that also echoes true with uh, the the Australian, uh, Royal Australian Air Force's uh, you know, UAS policy, you know, it closed its doors on investigating UFOs, as I mentioned, in 1996, despite the fact that it could not reach uh, a ready, uh, there was no ready explanation as to what uh, about 3% of their cases were. So you're know, there, the 3% that we care about. It's those anomalous reports that we want. Yeah, and, and, and this is kind of to echo what uh, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, now the former head of RO, said when he testified before um, Kirsten Gillibrand's committee in April of last year. Oh yeah. His goal, his goal with ARA at the time was to get cases to a point where they could resolve it and turn it into an SEP, someone else's problem, and pass it on to someone else. But they're not the ones that we we care about. We care about the 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 two three percent that are truly anomalous. Anomalous is the word I'm trying to get out. Uh, and we want to learn more about those cases. So, um, you know, hmm. it's it's just amazing that it's taken. It took as long as it did for ARA to get a public facing website up and running. And to this day, uh, I mean, there's, and there's not a whole lot of content on that website pertaining to cases uh, that they have been able to resolve. And, you know, their, their lack of uh, communication strategy is telling. I mean, they've had one post on social media on, on X since July of 2022. So I think they've really fallen short of meeting the, the, the general public's expectation of being yeah. as transparent as it could on the, on the topic. Well, when I I don't know if they they have the I don't believe they have the permanent uh, chair of uh, Arrow uh, Sean Kilpatrick's re permanent replacement there yet, but uh, no, they've only got an acting uh, acting director. Yeah. So I think that's Tim Phillips. I don't think they have appointed yet a uh, a full time replacement. But um, hopefully, who knows what that 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 new uh, installed director will be? Hopefully, there'll be a little bit more. Uh, ambitious and aggressive yeah. than Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick was because I think he was very, uh, I mean, every time, I mean, I've never met the guy, I don't know him, but just from an observational perspective at face value, whenever he spoke, he sounded like he really didn't want to be there or talking about the topic. Uh, so, you know, hopefully the next person that comes along is going to be a little bit more proactive than reactive on yeah. on uh, on the topic. Yeah. You know, I understand when he said, I've heard him say uh, two or three times, that um, he'll go wherever the evidence points him. And I think that's, you know, that's only fair and that's, that's the, you know, a proper response. Um, but I, I didn't see the ambition and I saw a lot of more or less closed mindedness, um, you know, kind of rear its ugly head a few times. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, the statements he made about David Grush and things like that, you know, were, were pretty negative and, uh, you know, not scientific to the point where, you know, the there wasn't an open mind, you know, like it just can't, you know, it, it can't be that type I of agree. thing. I agree. I yeah. agree. And and you know, the 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 he said, she said kind of scenario where, you know, Grush is uh is saying that no, he'd never received any oh, right. any 
calls or meetings from from Aro and and Dr. Yeah. Sean Kirkpatrick, and you know then Dr. Kirkpatrick is is refuting that. So the whole back and forth and the fact that you know Kirsten Gillibrand was trying to uh, get. Um, David Grush and Sean Kirkpatrick to get together and have a conversation. That didn't happen. Uh, and the the challenges that Kirsten Gillibrand herself had trying to get a sit down face to face with David Grush, the whole debacle over trying to, um, you know, not paying for uh, uh, travel and lodging fees to get him to Washington, D.C. was ridiculous. So, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think um, yeah. I, 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 I'm hoping that. The next person that comes along with Aro, uh, you know, uh, is someone that we can look to to really, you know, be a bit more aggressive and proactive and and take a more open, you know, skeptical yet open tone and and follow the facts wherever they lead. Follow the data, not just uh, select data, but follow all of the data wherever it leads. Yeah. So. And for him, for uh, one of the announcements that I heard him make was uh, when someone questioned him about the Tic Tac UFO incident um, in back in 2004 off of, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the island out there in California. Catalina, yeah. Yeah. Catalina way. Right. Uh, so when they asked him about that, and I was really shocked that his reply was, no, we have all the data. Matter of fact, you have all the data. You see everything on YouTube. That's all the data we have for that. And that's is BS. Yeah. Because, uh, BS. Someone went on board the uh, Princeton and took the, uh, I mean, not of the Princeton on the uh, Nimitz, I guess it was, and took the Hawkeyes radar uh, data bricks. Yep. So those data bricks and, you know, went somewhere and that's, you know, that's some major uh, data that they actually do have on that. And so that, that is living somewhere. And someone has that, and he can't—he can't be unaware of that. I don't think if he's exactly. I mean, all you need to do is listen to you know, listen to the testimony and what uh, Kevin Day has said, uh, PJ yeah. Hughes, Gary Voorhees. You know, all of the additional sensor data that was collected on the Nimitz incident, and it yeah. wasn't just on that day. It was you know ten days leading up to that event. Where uh, where David Fravor uh, and Alex Dietrich had the encounter, and then obviously the uh, the famous uh, Tic Tac footage was taken shortly thereafter. So for for Sean Kirkpatrick to come out and say that there's no additional data available is completely disingenuous. And I mean, you know, I I is it possible that that data no longer exists, has been destroyed? Possibly, but to say that the you know no data was ever no other data was ever available on the 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 Tic Tac the Nimitz incident is completely disingenuous. Yeah. I mean, you think of all the cases that did have information, footage, uh, or radar data or whatever like that. The Big Sur incident years ago um, where that missile was firing at, you know, a, a dummy warhead. Uh, you know, that that type of thing, uh, all going all the way back to uh, Gordon Cooper's, mm -hmm. you know, the footage on the uh, the airbase there that they had. Vandenberg and, and never saw that footage ever again. Never those tapes have never been returned yeah. or that where have they gone, you know? Yeah, it makes you really makes you wonder where, where do they go? And maybe maybe that is a possibility that things are destroyed. I mean, for what reason I would have no idea, but uh, you know, I mean for deniability, I guess it could be mm. uh restored. Yeah, plausible deniability. I think that's probably a big part of it. I yeah. think that's a big part of why uh you know 
those in positions of leadership and authority in Australia, like the Australian Minister for Defence, uh, like the the Chief of Air Force, you know, those guys, to my knowledge, have not yet even been briefed on UAP. Uh, and uh, is plausible deniability a, 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 an element of that? Possibly, uh, you know. I mean, the the thing that has that I was able to 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 break, um, you know, before the end of last year was that, and this just kind of gives you a uh, some background information on on you know the back and forth and the hypocrisy in Australia. So um, on the fifteenth of February. Um, of 2023, so last year, um, the obviously you know, in February of last year, for your viewers, you remember that's when the the Chinese spy balloon yes. thing happened, and the three unidentified aerial objects were shot down. Uh, so, the 15th of February 2023, the Chief of Air Force was pressed by. Senator Peter Wish Wilson, who's the Senator Green Senator for Tasmania, and and sadly he's he's the only Australian Senator to date that has taken this topic seriously in Australian context and had the courage and gumption to ask questions about UAP uh, in Parliament, and so he has dating back to October of 2021, he's been on a mission on a mission to really. Uh, better understand why, like me, the Australian Department of Defence is so hesitant and reluctant to uh, acknowledge the UAP topic and take it more seriously, uh, you know, secure briefings from the United States and so on. So 15th of February last year, Senator Wish Wilson pressed the Chief of Air Force, uh, current Chief of Air Force Air Marshal Robert Chipman, on uh, the Chinese spy balloon incident and those three unidentified aerial objects. And the Chief of Air Force uh, testified that he, as the head of the, the Air Force, had sought information uh, and a briefing from the um, air attache uh, to the United States in Washington, D.C., on those shoot-down events. Uh, and Senator Wish Wilson asked the Chief of Air Force, well, why did you seek a briefing on those four events specifically. And the Chief of Air Force's response was, well, we wanted to better understand the intent, uh, the source of those uh, objects, and more importantly, um, see what learnings we could gain from the US Department of Defense's responses to those incidents, uh, which the US Department of Defense has reiterated time and time again, uh, they were shot down, or even President Biden said this, that the Chinese spy balloon was brought down because of the national security risk, and those three unidentified aerial objects were brought down because of a safety of flight risk. Now, rewind the clock back to the 25th of June 2021, ODNI's preliminary assessment on UAP, and it states that UAP clearly pose a safety of flight risk and pose a potential national security rest, risk. And that was reiterated and echoed by uh, Representative um, uh, Ogle's uh, questioning uh, of David Grush, Ryan Graves and David Fravor in, in July of last year at the congressional hearing, that UAP clearly pose a national security threat. Well, why is the Australian Department of Defence or the Royal Australian Air Force, courtesy of the Chief of Air Force, why is it seeking a briefing and information on the shootdown of the Chinese spy balloon and those three unidentified aerial objects, which clearly represent a national security threat and safety of flight risk, yet it won't seek a briefing from the United States on UAP, which represent exactly the same threat 
safety of flight and national security threat. Mm. And it was only in, um, you know, it was in July of last year, the 19th of July, that the Australian Department of Defence responded to a question on notice, a written question that Senator Wish Wilson had submitted in June of last year, asking, well, did Australia attend the inaugural Five Eyes Forum on UAP led by ARO in May 2023? Uh, and the response that came back from uh, the Department of Defence was Australia did not attend a United States briefing on UAPs. And that's a verbatim quote. Fast forward to the 15th of December of only last year, and the Australian Department of Defence responded to a follow-up, uh, a number of follow-up questions on notice that Senator Wish Wilson had submitted, I believe on the 2nd of November. Uh, and the response was, that the question was, um, did the Australian Department of Defence receive an invitation from ARO to attend the Five Eyes Forum on UAP in May 2023? And that's a paraphrasing of the question. The, uh, the response that came back to that question was yes, in that it did receive an invitation. Uh, and the response was a defence representative based at the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C., attended. So why those contradicting statements? There's a complete 180. Why basically the lie back in July of 2023 and an about-face in December uh, of last year? So you know, one of two things is happening. Uh, there is some pure deception being played by the Australian Department of Defence. They've lied to a sitting senator and Australian taxpayers and or there is some catastrophic incompetence taking place where you know the Australian Department of Defence is not exercising its due diligence to find out, well, did we even attend the Five Eyes Forum on UAP? Did they do the homework and, and search and go for answers to that question? And I think it's a combination of the two, which doesn't really instill a lot of confidence in a sitting senator like Senator Wish Wilson going forward that their questions... Uh, and basically, he's a member. Senator Wish Wilson's a member of the Senate Estimates Committee uh, for Defense, Foreign Affairs, and Trade, comparable with kind of like the House Oversight Committee in the U.S. It scrutinizes taxpayers' uh, dollars where they're being spent on government projects. So it doesn't really instill a whole lot of confidence in Senator Wish Wilson and other senators going forward that their questions are going to be taken seriously and that there'll be a degree of due diligence exercised by the Department of Defence to find an answers to the questions that they're asking on behalf of their constituents. Uh, so I suspect Senator Wish Wilson is going to have some rather pointed and pertinent questions for the Australian Department of Defence at the next Senate estimates, which is next month in February, to get to the bottom of why that significant discrepancy, why that deception, why that lack of due diligence to answer the Senate's questions back in July, uh, as opposed to doing a backflip in December of last year. So there are two things that are of big concern um, in, in, in an Australian context. Wow. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities here. It seems like, you know, there's a lot of, has been a lot of double talk. And uh, I've often pondered, and it's only an opinion, I have no evidence to back it up of any kind at all, but I've always thought that our government uh, probably knows a lot more than they're sharing, but they don't know everything. And I wondered, uh, I think there's still uh, one of the reasons that um, the Air Force 
has not really gotten too involved yeah. at all. Our Air Force. Where's the Air Force? Is because <laughs> they can't really silent. tell us exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, it's all speculation. I wondered uh, if you felt a similar feeling about your government as far as they may know more than they're letting you yeah, know. Yeah, well, 100%. I, I suspect that the... The Australian intelligence community knows a hell of a lot more than uh, the Australian Department of Defence does. So the Australian Defence Force Services, uh, the uh, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, and uh, Defence Space Command, which now no longer falls off, uh, under the remit of the Royal Australian Air Force. It's now Joint Operations Command. But the Defence Services, uh, those four that I just mentioned, I suspect they know not nearly as much as the intelligence community in Australia. We're talking about the Australian Signals Directorate. Uh, we're talking about the National Geospatial uh, um, Organization or the equivalent of the NGA in the States. You've got uh, ASIS, you've got the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, uh, uh, organization ASIO. You've got the uh, uh, Office of National Intelligence, O&I, and you've got the Defense Intelligence Organization. I suspect those intelligence community uh, bodies know a hell of a lot more on the UAP UFO topic than we, the Australian general public, know about, uh, and and that's that's you know what I'm trying to seek clarification and confirmation of is well, what does the uh, not just the Australian Department of Defence know, but what does our Australian intelligence community know about UAP? Sadly, that's going to be a very hard question to get an answer to because all of the intelligence communities in Australia are exempt from FOIA, for exempt from Freedom of Information Act. So, mm. um, you know, as a private mm. citizen, I'm never going to get any information out of those intelligence community services. However, a sitting senator that has uh, the appropriate clearances to hear classified information like uh, the likes of perhaps a Senator Wish Wilson and others that are on the uh, Senate estimates for uh, defence, foreign affairs and trade, well, they can ask questions and they may be able to have those questions answered in a classified setting. So uh, it's important that folks that need to know uh, that are in positions of uh, leadership and authority are afforded that information. Uh, and if the intelligence community knows more than it, it, is, it is shared with the Australian public, uh, then it's imperative that our elected representatives that have those clearances are provided that information as well. Right, right. Um, we have and that's uh, very and that's and and this is very similar to what's going on in the in the U.S. at the moment. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, not to cut you off, but obviously, you know, we've just had the uh, the House Oversight Committee, sixteen members of that committee. Uh, attend a, a, a skiff meeting with the uh, Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, uh, and all of them, a lot of them, have come out of that that hearing, uh, sounding somewhat more, taking a more serious tone in 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 uh, you know how they felt that hearing went compared to the the last skiff meeting they had with the uh, Inspector General for the the DoD. Uh, so it sounds like you know if you just look at what. Um, you know, Representative or, or Jared Moscovich came out of that skiff hearing and, and posted on, on X or put a tweet out saying that he basically now believes or feels that, uh, you know, what was his quote? He said, Jared Moscovich's quote was, based on what we have, based on what we heard, many of Grush's claims have merit. So it's good to see that 
it, it sounds like those members that attended of that House Oversight Committee that attended the SCIF have reached uh, a greater level of uh, assurance knowing that uh, uh, the claims that Grush has made uh, deemed, you know, is, is the reasons why the Inspector General deemed those, uh, you know, the complaint as uh, urgent and credible. And it sounds like, you know, that they've got a course of action that they want to pursue going forward. I mean, you just look at what um, Anna Paulina Luna has put out, basically saying, you know, I feel confident that we have enough evidence to move forward with our field hearing. Uh, we will be announcing more soon. So it sounds like, uh, you know, members of the House Oversight Committee have, um, whilst all their not all their questions were answered because obviously they don't have all the appropriate clearances to hear uh, everything that's classified that the uh, Inspector General is aware of pertaining to David Grush's claims, it sounds like they're now, uh, you know, they have a, a plan of attack to continue to move the needle forward and get to the bottom of, uh, of, of really what's going on. And it's just so frustrating that, you know, July of last year, David Grush testified before the House Oversight Committee in Congress. And to this date, you know, they still not have been afforded the appropriate clearances, even if it's just a one-time read-in, to hear David Grush's testimony, classified testimony, uh, in, in a skiff as it pertains to waste, fraud and abuse. And that's exactly what the House Oversight Committee is charged with. Its mission is to expose waste, fraud and abuse and mitigate the potential for waste, fraud and abuse going forward. And it's how can it exercise oversight when it is not allowed to see the classified information uh, that, that that David Grush uh, you know, has has uh, has indicated that he is uh, that, that's that he's he's aware of? You know, it's just crazy that there's this there's this um, this this stonewalling going on in the U.S. by the intelligence community and those in U.S. DOD that are just hampering efforts for um, House Oversight Committee to do it, to, ex to, to fulfill its congressional mandate. Right. Well, we just, there was just a closed uh, UAP meeting uh, for the House, uh, uh, you know, uh, let's see, House members. Uh, yep. So I think 16 I, of them attended. Really That's a pretty good turnout. What's that? You know, and, and from all accounts, 16, um, uh, so about 34% of the entire House Oversight Committee, 16 members attended that SCIF yeah. meeting uh, by, you know, conducted by, I think it's um, the Inspector General Monheim for the intelligence community. So, you know, you've got a pretty deep, you've got a turnout, more of a turnout at the SCIF meeting than those that attended uh, the House Oversight Committee hearing in July of last year. So, you know, that should tell you something in itself. Right. Right. So I think we should uh, shift gears. This has been really fascinating, but I'd like to talk about some Australian cases. And I know you've done a lot of work. I've had uh, Shane Ryan on a number of times on yep. the show. Great guy. I know that you know him. Uh, the Westall 1966, I want to say, is when that, that yeah, happened. 6th of, April, 6th of April 1966. Would yep. you say that's uh, basically Australia's Roswell? Or, or yeah, what? I, I, I yeah. would say it's Australia's Roswell and it's Australia's uh, Ariel School. Um, yeah, so there, that, that, that is, I understand yeah. that. Yeah, that's a good connection. It's yeah. it's a fascinating case. And, and you know, coming into um, 
you know, trying to be a sponge and learn as, as much as I could on this topic from as many as I could. I didn't really know a whole lot about the Westall incident um, coming into it. I mean, I'd heard of it. I knew the, you know, the, the background information, but it wasn't until I saw, uh, you know, a few people had suggested I, I maybe uh, look into it. Um, I watched you know, a wonderful documentary that Shane Ryan, uh, who's really been the lead investigator researcher on Westall for uh, yeah, uh, oh, more than a decade now, for many, many years. There are other great researchers that have done some wonderful work on Westall, uh, Keith Basterfield, Bill Chalker, Ross Coulthard as well. Uh, yeah. But Shane Ryan has really carried the torch to um, continue to try and uncover information on the Westall incident. And so I reached out to to Shane Ryan uh, just to kind of pick his brain and and get some good background information from him. And he suggested to me, he told me about um, an annual reunion event that a small number of the Westall uh, incident witnesses, the Westall witnesses um, kind of, you know, put together and attend each year. And you know, obviously over COVID, there was a bit of a hiatus on that reunion event. But Shane Ryan told me about uh, a reunion event that they were, had planned for, and this is going back in April of last year. And I thought, oh, wow, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just go along as a member of the general public and, um, you know, would love to hear what they have to say. And, and uh, so I took, you know, I went along, I took my little iPhone with me uh, thinking maybe I'll get a couple of uh, comments on camera. And before I knew it, there was quite a, a, a decent turnout of other members of the general public that were curious like I was. And I was just fascinated to hear what uh, these primary witnesses had to recount, you know, the, the stories that they had to share, their recollections. Uh, and many of them were very, very giving, and all of them actually were very generous and giving of their time. And they accepted they were willing to go on camera. So I just, you know, had my iPhone with me, put that on record and, and just asked, I felt bad because I was kind of, you know, um, gunning them with tons of questions, but uh, I was able to get all of this wonderful commentary and testimony from these primary witnesses, which they'd kind of shared before in Shane Ryan's great documentary, uh, Westall 66, a suburban, suburban UFO mystery, uh, a really good introduction for anyone that doesn't know much about the Westall case. It's a great documentary. It was also obviously covered um, by James Fox's great documentary, The Phenomenon, a number yep. of years ago, 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I captured a lot of uh, footage of these primary witnesses just talking about their, uh, their recollections of the, of the day, their memories, and they were all willing to go on camera. So I had quite a number of, you know, hours of footage that I was able to then edit and compile down into about a almost a 90-minute mini-documentary kind of like a, just a long form format of them answering questions and talking about their experience. And uh, I found them all to be incredibly compelling. Uh, the, the one thing that is very frustrating that I gathered from all of them is that, you know, 50, now 58 years after the incident, which happened on the 6th of April, 1966, they're also still very frustrated that they were told on the day and in the days uh, following to shut up about it. They weren't allowed mm. to talk about the incident. Why? Why weren't yeah. they allowed to talk about it? If it was something pro as prosaic as a weather balloon or a high bow balloon, a high altitude balloon, uh, which there were, there were launchings from Mildura uh, in, you know, uh, north of uh, kind of north uh, west of, of Victoria where 
they conducted uh, in, in coordination with the Department of Energy in the United States and even NASA. They used these high altitude balloons to conduct scientific testing, atmospheric testing, even try and smell remnants of, uh, you know, detect radioactivity uh, in the air following detonation of nuclear blasts in the, uh, in the Pacific region, in the Pacific. Uh, and so there was a hypothesis put forward by great researcher Keith Basterfield that well, high bowel should be considered as a plausible explanation. And I, I, I'm respectful, uh, you know, respect the great work that Keith did to put that forward as a hypothesis. And, and that's all he positioned it as, a hypothesis. He doesn't know what it is, if it was or wasn't, but that was a hypothesis. But uh, the thing that's so frustrating is that 58 years after the Westall Lennon incident, to date, no official record or explanation has ever been provided by the Australian federal government, state government or local governments. There's been no official documentation on the Westall incident at all that has seen the light of day. Despite the fact, and, and Ross Coulthard has said this a number of times, along with Shane Ryan, despite the fact that the now defunct Department of Supply was uh, more than rumoured was uh, it was, you know, confirmed that they investigated the Westall incident fairly comprehensively and compiled a fairly significant report. Now, that report on the Westall incident by the Department of Supply has never seen the light of day. Uh, mm. If it was so prosaic and if it was, you know, some say it was highbell or some top secret technology back in the 60s, well, that technology is obviously... Uh, rudimentary now and is no longer you know, right. of top secret nature. So why not release information pertaining to what it was if it was prosaic? Uh, there's been no documentation or ever any record provided by any government agency, and that's been part of the frustration. But if you talk to and you know the, those primary witnesses, and even if you watch them on the phenomenon, uh, you know Westall sixty six, or even the the documentary that I did, um, you know many of them are, are, are pretty much adamant in the fact that they saw something that resembled uh, a flying saucer. It resembled the shape of a flying saucer. Uh, one of the witnesses said it almost looked uh, translucent, translucent in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 it moved in ways that um, some of them could not explain or, or reconcile with, you know, technology that they would have seen, uh, light aircraft, which flew over the school uh, repeatedly, you know, Moorabbin Airport was only a couple of kilometres away, so you're clearly able to uh, hear and identify light aircraft flying over the school and the, uh, you know, the, the alleged landing site area, the Grange, which was about a, a mile south of the school, uh, and you would be able to identify, you know, other prosaic objects like uh, weather balloons, like hot air balloons, which... The children knew what those objects looked like, but they weren't able to reconcile what this was that they saw that they saw above the skies, uh, above in the skies above their school, uh, and that was reported to have descended uh, or even landed in this uh, densely wooded area known as the Grange, about a mile south of the school. So, um, what the Westall incident? What, what what can be attributed to what they saw? on the 6th of April, 1966, uh, above their school in Westall at the Grange. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I certainly find their, 
their testimony incredibly compelling uh, and the fact that there's a complete lack of any documentary evidence 58 years after uh, that, that yeah. makes it an enduring mystery and, and one of those longstanding cold cases. Yes, yeah, that's, that's really... Uh, there's so many puzzles, and I know that I I believe this was the incident where the girl was kind of whisked away and not seen. Um, and but I but they had been able to locate her. Is that true? Yeah. So um, her name was Tanya Vassi, and she was actually brought forward by Ross Coulthard um, only a oh. few years ago. So she came forward. Uh, there were reports that she was. Um, you know, uh, whisked, whisked away. Uh, she was taken away in an ambulance and then she she left the school uh, abruptly and, and no one ever heard from her again. I think that that account has been um, disputed since obviously the, uh, the documentary. So um, I don't know uh, the truth behind those those claims, but she certainly came forward um, only a few years ago and spoke briefly about, you know, um, uh, her, her recollections of the day. But, you know, what is, what is also incredibly interesting is that you had reports from several of the primary witnesses of a military presence on site at the school uh, in, you know, uh, a very short time after the anomalous object or objects because some indicated that up to three objects were seen not just the right. one uh yeah. that there was a military presence on site uh after it happened and for a number of days and that there were even some folks that uh appeared to be uh military officials or even government officials that were um you know telling people to shut up about it i mean you had one of the one of the uh the children i believe it was tanya tanya vassi i can't quite recall but she was taken into a a a room in the uh in the school and she was asked questions by two folks in suits uh which she stated one of them she was able to identify had a distinct american accent so why is a yank why is an american on site investigating a prosaic uh you know uh sighting and you yeah, had not, the not surprising at all no the well they, there you go you and, and you know you've got the <laughs> yeah the, the and but then also um you know it wasn't just children that observed the uh the the the, the flying saucer or flying saucers you had uh, a young teacher by the name of Andrew Greenwood, who was 20, year, 20 years of age on the day of the uh, of the incident, and he was also uh, he also came forward uh, only a couple of years ago right. on a documentary that Ross Coulthard did on the Westall incident, and yeah. he has stated that you know, only a, a day or a few days after the incident, he had some folks in military uniforms come knocking on his door at his house, uh, unsolicited, yeah. uninvited. Um, asking him to not, yeah, yeah telling him yeah. to shut up, not talk about the incident, because if he did, it would be very easy for people to then uh, come to the conclusion that he was uh, drunk on the day of the incident and that he was yeah. an alcoholic. So they they yeah. basically given him this veiled threat that if you talk about it, you're going to lose your job and no one's going to take you seriously going forward. Yeah, hang on just one minute. Uh, wait, just one second here. First of all, is that documentary available? Uh, it, it is, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, 
Um, it was done by uh, so Ross Coulthard has done uh, a couple. No, no, of I'm sorry. I apologize. I mean the one that you did. Oh yes, no, certainly. Uh, so it's called the Westall Witnesses, and Is it's, it on, it's YouTube? on my um, my YouTube channel. Uh, okay. If you just type into YouTube my name or the Unexplained Rundown, which is the name of my podcast, well, one of right. the videos you'll find there is called the Westall Witnesses. All right, I will put that. I'll link that in the show notes as well oh, as uh, uh, below you. this uh, YouTube and uh, this video. Uh, what I'd like to do right now is say goodbye to everyone at KGRA Radio. We'll see you next week, and uh, we'll continue on a little longer. I have uh, Dr. Job Safa on next week for a guest. So let's continue on a little longer, if you don't mind. Because, sure. um, uh, again, thank you all at KGRA Radio. And so, uh, so to continue on, I'd like to ask you about, as far as this case, there's really been nothing relevant except for that uh, teacher finally talking about it and coming forward. Um, and was this also the case where they took the camera from someone or they took film or something out of a camera? Yeah, so it, it was also alleged that another teacher um, by the name of, I can't remember her name, but there was a another teacher that was alleged to have taken photographs on, on a camera um, during the incident, but like any, you know, good UFO case, that camera was confiscated. Uh, if the the allegation is to be to, to uh, believed to be true, that uh, camera was confiscated, and that photographic evidence has also never seen the light of day. So, uh, you know, there is if uh, and and to to go one step further, the Channel Nine, which is one of our legacy news media's in Australia, uh, they were on site on the school in the afternoon that day. A journalist was on site with a cameraman, and they were interviewing uh, a number of the children. Uh, and they would, and that night on the news, they aired their story uh, of what the children had seen that day at Westall High School, and that broadcast has also disappeared uh, since the uh, the broadcast on the night of the 6th of April, 1966. Now, Shane Ryan is of the belief that it's quite possible that that broadcast was simply destroyed uh, in accordance with retention policies years past. But you would think something that is potentially so significant uh, because there were some articles in the you know local newspapers in the days following the Westall incident on the uh, uh, on the on the sighting on the incident itself. Uh, but to your question, you know the alleged photographic evidence that was taken on a camera by one of the other teachers that uh, that was uh, confiscated. Again, never seen the light of day. So another another piece of the puzzle that makes it just uh, an enduring mystery. Do you recall if any of the witnesses had any like uh, other sightings along the way? Did they any of them talk about them having other things in their lives, you know, happened since that time? It's a good question. No, I didn't ask that question. I only um, I only asked them specifically about their recollections on on that day, the sixth of April, mm -hmm. nineteen sixty six. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you either way if they've had any other experiences pre or post that yeah. uh, that day. Uh, but you know, they were all um, there. Are th those that were there on the day of the reunion event that I was able to get on camera. You know, on the day of the incident. Um, 
most of the children were, you know, 12, 13 years of age. Uh, there was, uh, but it wasn't all school children that saw the 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 object above the West Hall High School. It was also Andrew Greenwood, as I mentioned, the teacher, and there was also Paul Smith, who was a 16-year-old working in the market gardens that were adjacent to uh, the Grange area, this wooded area where it was alleged to have descended or landed or hovered on the ground. He was 16 years of age on the day of the sighting, and uh, so and he was not. Uh, associated with the school children. And then you have, there are other witnesses that were off-site, not on the school, not in the market gardens, that also saw something, uh, you know, in the sky above Westall High School. One of the one of the primary witnesses I spoke to on the day, her name was Dee Sadake. Uh, she was a, a, a student. Uh, she was about 12, 13 years of age on the day of the incident. She was at a, a school that was several miles away from Westall High School. And during her recess break, she looked up in the skies and she saw something anomalous that resembled a flying saucer. She saw it was clearly a flying saucer when it banked and kind of turned on its side to move. Uh, so she wasn't even at Westall High School and she saw something. So it's not just isolated to the children and these small number of teachers at Westall High School. You've got cooperative evidence from uh, a number of different folks from different backgrounds, different ages that saw something uh, on, on the day. And, you know, to date, to, to Shane Ryan's credit, he has now interviewed uh, and uncovered, uh, I, I believe he spoke with up to 180 witnesses um, for, of the of the Westall incident, and so you know he's done a remarkable remarkable job to bring forward uh, so many people, you know, more than just the handful of school children that were uh, willing to come out early on and talk about what they saw. So there is, uh, you know, over time, more and more people I think maybe feel more comfortable to talk about what it is they saw on the day. Um, and, and hopefully that continues to, to happen as well. So now, did anyone go uh, where th they, this thing either hovered or landed in the Grange and try to, you know, get to see if there's any type of trace evidence? Yeah, so it was um, reported that where there were three students, I can't remember uh, their names, but it is covered in uh, the phenomenon, Ross Coulthard's documentary on Seven Spotlight and Westall 66 that Shane Ryan did, that there were three school children that uh, ran to the Grange area where this object was reported to have seen descending or hovered. Uh, you're one of the... One of the girls uh, reported seeing it it had landed in, in the Grange and then it kind of banked on an angle and just shot up uh, at an incredible rate of speed. Um, what is interesting is that on the day of the reunion event, April of last year, the primary witnesses that took place at the Grange, they took um, those members of the general public, including myself, that were there on the day, we all walked to the alleged landing site. So it's a clearing uh, at the southeast corner of the Grange. And uh, it's just, it was reported that there was, uh, and they say this in, in the documentary I did, that they saw a symmetrical circle, uh, an imprint of flattened grass uh, where this mm. craft was alleged to have hovered or, or landed. So 
And then you have reports from some folks that military were on site in the day later the day and the days following in that area with uh, with Geiger counters, with metal detectors, that soil samples were dug up and taken off site. Why would you need to do that if it was something that was prosaic in nature, you know, other than hey. if it was some, you know, top secret technology that was uh, being uh, used to detect atmospheric conditions on a high bow that crashed and they didn't want anyone to retrieve it. Maybe, I don't know, but that seems less plausible to me based on the fact that uh, you would think school children and uh, a 60 year old market gardener would be able to discern uh, a deflating uh, high bow balloon. Uh, in, you know, and, and it's really hard for people to appreciate the environment unless they're actually there on site. You know, having been now on site at the school and at the Grange, and see how low light aircraft fly above you. It's it's um, it's implausible for me to think that children would not have been able to identify it as a deflating balloon uh, if it did, uh, you know, descend towards the Grange. Well, it's coming towards the ground. Paul Smith would have seen, uh, you know, I believe he would have seen uh, and been able to identify it as a balloon. And and he has said categorically when I asked him the question. Um, you know, some have said that it's a high bow. He says, no, it wasn't a balloon. It certainly wasn't a balloon. So, uh, but, but yes, to your question, there was, uh, there, there was a you know, rumored alleged to be trace evidence, this implant and imprint in the flattened grass, uh, soil samples were taken. That area was closed off, uh, to, for, for a number of days. And you even had reports of, and this is what I tried to cover off in my little documentary is that parallel to the southeast corner of the Grange where this alleged landing site is, there's a golf course called, called the Spring Valley Golf Club. And that golf course has not changed all that much significantly since, the 19, since 1966. So I wanted to know, well, and it was reported, and Shane Ryan has reported this, he got in touch with uh, the son of a groundskeeper who was working at the golf course on the day of the incident and the groundskeeper's son reported to Shane Ryan that, you know, when his dad came home that day, he was told that there were a number of golfers on the eighth hole that observed something in the skies uh, descending towards the Grange. And it was uh, anomalous to them. They weren't able to identify what it was. So I was very curious to see, well, what was the perspective that these golfers potentially, what would they have potentially seen uh, through their eyes, what would their point of view or perspective been on the day, the 6th of April, 1966? So I booked myself in for a round of golf, you know, paid through the arse for a round, but uh, I was able to film from the eighth, the eighth, uh, the, the eighth hole uh, from the fairway and the green, what the perspective would have looked like by golfers that were putting or, you know, playing the short game towards the, uh, the, the end of the eighth hole to see what, it it may have looked like through their eyes on the day, seeing something anomalous uh, descend into the densely wooded area known as the Grange. So I, I covered that element in my documentary, which had never really been touched on before. So just another added piece of the of the puzzle, I guess. That's interesting. So for the person out there that's listening or watching, um, and is not familiar with the Westall. UFO incident. Um, I will put a link to uh, that. So an overall Wikipedia or something in the uh, show notes. So you'll be able to 
read up on that and, and get more information. It's a very, very interesting. I think there were hundreds or well over 100 witnesses uh, back in 1966 um, in the Melbourne uh, area at the Westall School. Um, so yeah, it's a great case. What would you consider uh, another one of your favorites that you've looked into that happened in your country? Um, so well, there's another case uh, that I haven't done a lot of uh, homework on myself, but I know someone who has George Simpson, uh, who's another researcher in Australia. He he authored a wonderful book called Nothing on Radar. So it's the the Frederick Valentich case oh, yes. of mm -hmm. uh, the late 1970s, where um, you know sadly he, he lost his life. Uh, his yeah light plane uh he encountered something that was anomalous to him he couldn't reconcile what it was uh and uh, a lot of the commentary was caught between him and air traffic control was recorded unfortunately the the actual recordings have never been located they may have been destroyed there's a transcript that i was made aware of that was uh put into a um a recreation using the transcript uh, but that's a fascinating case where you've got someone that's, uh, you know, a, a general aviation pilot that has seen something anomalous that has engaged his aircraft. And unfortunately, uh, he, Frederick Valentich, Valentich lost, his, uh, lost his life. And that's been another case that has never been uh, resolved. So that still remains an enduring cold case mystery as well. Um, you know, I, I am yet to read um, George Simpson's book, Nothing on Radar, but from what I've heard, it's a, it's a great uh, recount of that, um, that incident. Yeah, yeah, that is such a mystery. And, you know, I mean, there's the noise. I believe, I, I believe James Fox told me that he actually at one time heard the original recording, I believe, if right. that's possible. Um, you know, many possible, years ago, yeah. and, and and that's uh, and, and that's gone. But uh, yeah, that there's a lot of reenactments. You can find that out um, if you're looking on YouTube. They have reenactments of of uh, the transcript of what what happened that day. But yeah, that's. I mean, uh, one, one of the one of the cases that I I covered um, on my on my channel that I'm I'm on a big I'm a big Kurt Russell fan uh, for those out there. Oh yeah, like Kurt Russell. Yeah. Uh, and and I I've taken a. A big interest in the Phoenix Lights of uh, of March of 1997, and for those that follow and know the the Phoenix Lights incident, uh, you know it was in 2017 when Kurt Russell was promoting uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two on the BBC's The One Show that he came out and he revealed to the world that he was the general aviation pilot that reported to air traffic control at Sky Harbor International that he was the pilot that reported. Uh, observing the Phoenix lights on approach to the airport. And I found that to be incredibly fascinating. Then it was a year later in 2018, he then went on the Jimmy Kimmel show uh, and talked again about his encounter with his uh, son, Oliver Hudson, uh, uh, you know, seeing the Phoenix lights. And, and Kurt yeah. Russell and his family seem to have quite an interesting connection with uh, the, the UFO topic because Goldie, Goldie Horn has uh, Kurt Russell's longtime partner has had her own experiences with the phenomenon, uh, and even Kurt Russell's son Wyatt Russell has uh, seen seen a UFO. So it, I don't know if it runs in the family, but yeah. um, I did a bit of a deep dive of Kurt Russell's account or, it, or uh, sighting of the Phoenix Lights, and was able to actually uncover some new information that had never been reported before publicly. 
is that I was able to track down um, the pilot, the the owner of the aircraft, the light aircraft, a single prop uh, propeller engine plane that Kurt flew to Phoenix on the night of the 13th of March, 1997. And for anyone that's a Kurt Russell fan out there, this is a bit of a spoiler, but Kurt Russell did a film in 1996 called Executive Decision, where he uh, is uh, at the the front end of the film, he's he's learning how to become a... um, uh, a general aviation pilot. So he's doing one of his last flights with an instructor before he does his solo flight. And if you listen to what Kurt Russell says in that interview on the BBC's The One program in 2017, he says three words. He says, he basically says, I was the, uh, the, the tail sign of the plane was to Tango Sierra and I was the pilot. And I knew I had heard the words to Tango Sierra before. So I consulted the Oracle, my Kurt Russell DVD collection, and at the front end of Executive Decision, Decision 1996, there is a scene where Kurt Russell's character, David Grant, is uh, doing one of his last you know, f- flights before his solo flight, and he's coming uh, into land, he's on approach, and he, uh, during, in the film, he says his call sign of to Tango Sierra to air traffic control, the exact same call sign that he uh, revealed in that interview on the BBC's One Show. And I was able to confirm that the plane that he flew in the film Executive Decision was the exact plane that he flew to Phoenix on the 13th of March, 1907. And I know that to be the case because I was able to track down the owner of that plane to Tango Sierra, his name was John Rexy Moore. And as a fun fact, he was actually the flight instructor in that scene with Kurt Russell in executive decision. He's good friends with Kurt Russell. And it was his plane that was used in the film that Kurt Russell also flew to Phoenix when he saw the Phoenix lights. So talk about some synchronicities there. But I just found that to be an interesting side, uh, side, side story. Yeah, and if it wasn't for Goldie Hawn, he would have never uh, recalled that whole incident. She was watching something on the Phoenix yeah. lights, I believe, and that's what jo- jogged his memory. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I was there about the same time, and when he looked in his logbook, he figured out it was March. Uh, of I mean, isn't it interesting that you know, Kurt, Kurt and Oliver Hudson never spoke about what they saw uh the Phoenix lights after it happened. And yeah. I mean, you hear that time and time with a lot of other people, they kind of just forget about it and get right. on with life. Yes. And yeah, you're right. You know, he overheard uh, this documentary that the goalie was watching on TV about the Phoenix lights and that sparked his memory. And then he ran and had a look at his log books because he, he, you know, like any good pilot, they document every single flight and yeah, he confirmed it. He was flying to Phoenix on the 13th of March, 1997. Uh, and he saw the Phoenix lights. Yeah, uh, I'm just going to pop this up. Just I don't know if I can show this, but it, just a couple of things. We're at the end of our show, and uh, I was actually underneath the Chinese spy balloon when it was shot. Um, wow. Yeah, I just happened to get out of my How car fascinating. Uh, in Myrtle Beach. I don't know if this shows it. I'm going to take a chance here. Looking at the it, Chinese it all out, and when it gets over the... And then uh, this is when it was shot. Yeah, I actually am doing this while they shot the balloon. It's coming down. They shot the balloon.
How fascinating. There so you go. You were you know, a first-hand witness. Yeah, to, that's right. Uh, yeah, the the BBC, down. actually, I put it on Twitter, and the BBC got a hold of me, and um, they interviewed oh, me, and wow. they did put it, it, it did, they did publish it. Um, so also... Well, look, what, and what I would say on that is, uh, how frustrating is it that the U.S. Department of Defense will be quick to, quick to release footage from a U-2 spy plane, Dragon Lady of the Chinese spy balloon, and it will be quick to release... Uh, you know, footage of Russian jets uh, dousing MQ-9 Reaper drones with fuel. They'll be quick to release that footage, but they'll, they have not yet released any of the visual uh, photographic or, or injury footage of those uh, three identified, uh, unidentified aerial objects that were shot down. That's right. What, what does that tell you, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. Those, uh, the ones up in Alaska and the Yukon and all that. Very, very strange. Um, also, we mentioned Ross Coldheart a lot, and I want to say to uh, the uh, public that listen to this show, my favorite podcast is Need to Know with Bryce Zabel and Ross Coldheart. I love that show, and uh, I listen to each one of them. And I think uh, for all those uh, of you that uh, really like this topic, I uh, highly endorse that and uh, would like for you to check it out. The Need, need to Know, it's called. And uh, they do such a wonderful job, those two. Really great stuff. So you should be proud you got your guy from Australia taking this so seriously, and he's such a sharp 100%. guy. I mean, I, I need to know is one of my primary sources of information because, like we were saying off air at the start, you know, with so much that's been happening on this topic over the course of the last few years, it, it, it it's almost become a full-time job to stay up to date with what's new and what's breaking mm -hmm. and 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 Bryce and Ross, they do such a great job of covering and recapping, uh, you know, what's come out, what's breaking, and the implications as well, uh, and and what to potentially think is around the, around the corner on the horizon. So, you know, for so many of us, uh, Ross and Bryce serve as a bit of a barometer as to uh, as to where we are, you know, where we're going on the topic. But I, I certainly echo your sentiment. Need to know is a is a great. Um, Great educational uh, platform and, and it's certainly very informing as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, thank you for all your information and good luck for your journey along the way here. And I'm sure I appreciate we'll be, it. We'll be uh, look, having you on back again. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much, Martin, for having me on and, and uh, having a good fun chat with you and sharing some insights with your viewers. I, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate the chat. Excellent. Okay. Take care. Uh, so I uh, have been talking a lot with uh, Mark D'Antonio and a few other people about the jellyfish balloon because so many people have an interest in that. And uh, it's possible that it is this right here, um, which is actually an Islamic um, EID uh, celebration balloon. The, the kind of fits that. I don't think there's anything conclusive yet, though, exactly what that is. It's very interesting. Um, you know, what would really help is if we had footage of this thing actually going into the water like some of the witnesses that Jeremy Corbell says he has spoken to has uh, talked about and they actually have that footage supposedly. Now that would really help if we all could see that and uh, you know of course it's it's definitely a mystery as to what it is. Uh, next week we have uh, Job Safa on. Don't forget uh, it's a good show. He's a scientist. It will be interesting. Um, and just in a couple of days on Thursday night, we have Michael Schratt joining us on UAP Crossfire. A lot of people really love it. Some people don't like it. It's myself, Chris DiPerno, 
Don Ecker and uh, Commander Cobra with four of us. We kind of uh, have different points on UFO topics. And again, Michael Schratt on uh, UAP crash retrievals. Uh, he was on the show not too long ago. Very well received. He will be on that. Also, we have a treat. Um, I've noticed tonight that uh, my friend, uh, very talented musician, uh, Mark Stanley, has been in the chat and joining us. And uh, I've known him for many years, a great guy. I'm going to play one of his songs for uh, the outro here, which is a little something different for us. And I hope you enjoy it. And we'll see you next week. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky. She's ready. I got time. So there you are. When I see her, my heart beats faster. Starts beating like a big bass drum. Every time that I walk past her, everything about her says she's the one. Everything about it says She's the one She's like the sun dancing off the water She's like the first time that I fell in love I can't wait to say that I've got her what I've waited for has finally come When I see her, my heart beats faster Starts beating like a big bass drum Every time that I walk past her Everything about her says that she's the one Everything about her says She's the one She's the one that makes me forget Where I've been before She's the one that I've no regrets That I've never been loved like this before When I see my heart beats faster Starts beating like a big bass drum Every time that I walk past her Everything about her says She's the one Everything about her says She's the one Everything about her says